Before we jump into the scriptures, I, I want you to just put yourself into a hypothetical situation for a moment, all right? Somebody walks up to you and gives you a challenge and says, I will give you a million dollars, you're already interested, if you can fill this 20-gallon bucket with this 8-ounce cup and that spigot that's 50 feet away. You think, great. A little bit of effort, a little bit of time, a few steps back and forth in between, and, and it's mine. But there's a catch. There's a hole in the bucket the size of a quarter. All right, so you say, I, man, I, I can overcome that. So you set off, you go to the spigot, and you get cup number one, and you bring it and you put it in. Great. You get cup number two, you get it, you bring it in, you pour it in. Water level comes up a little bit. Number three, same. Number four, same. Number five, same. But then it starts to hit the water level. The, the, the water level rises to the point of the hole. And as you go back to get cup number six, you come back and the water has sunk below the hole. And you go, oh, no, this is a problem. But I really want the million dollars. And so maybe if I move faster and if I try harder... I'll be able to fill that bucket. So you, you, you go faster. You drop it in and you run trying to fill it and bring it back so that you can put it in and compensate for the leak in the bucket. I mean, it's a million dollars. But about 150 cups in, you would probably start to realize, or if you're smarter earlier, that that's a futile action. Every time you return to the bucket, no matter how fast you move or how hard you try, the water level drops below the hole. You can't do it. You cannot compensate and overcome the weaknesses of that situation. Some of us treat salvation that way. Some of us treat salvation with the thoughts and with the mindset and the perspective that if I just behave well enough, running back and forth trying to grab the water, if I just prove myself enough, running back and forth trying to grab the water, if I just demonstrate growth well enough, then I will know that my salvation is assured, it's sure, and I can rest in my relationship with God. But the problem is your own works and goodness are the equivalent of that leaky bucket. We should actually, to make the analogy more accurate, we should probably put the holes on the bottom of the leaky bucket, right? And it just never actually starts to accumulate. But the point is, if you're trying to gain security or to gain assurance by what you do and how well you, you do it and how much you demonstrate that you are worthy, it won't work. And so I'm sure if and when you have tried that, that you have quickly sensed the futility of it. And in light of those things, I want to communicate some truths from the book of Hebrews to you and to my own heart today. Truths that should orient our faith in the right way so that we can be assured and we can be at rest in what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, if you'd like to turn there, chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. 
Why don't you read with me? Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We're going to be looking together at three contrasts to assure. Contrasts because in the book of Hebrews, the author is writing for the sake of demonstrating throughout the book the superiority of Jesus to anything and everything else that was in the mind of the reader and the listener to which they might anchor their hope, to which they might anchor their eternal life, to which they might anchor the idea of salvation. So throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer is saying, no, 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 let me show to you how Jesus is better. Let me show to you how Jesus is superior to to Moses, how he is superior to the angels, how he is superior in this way and that way in so many ways. And one of these ways is right here when he's contrasting the priestly work and the sacrificial offering that was done under the Mosaic system and that was done by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so as he's drawing this contrast here between these two, he's intending to assure the believers that Christ is one to never be abandoned, but that rather you should cling to him, you should be convinced steadfastly of who he is and what he's done such that nothing can ever shake you from it. And so the first contrast that we see here is that of the priestly position. We see standing versus sitting. Okay, so on the one hand, verse 11 says, every priest stands, but on the other hand, it says that he, which is Jesus in verse 12, he sat down, and it goes on, at the right hand of God, waiting for something that we'll get into in just a moment. But this contrast of standing and sitting, this may not seem like such a big deal. It may not seem, I mean, okay, it's just a matter of position, right? One standing and one is sitting. But this contrast is actually the pinnacle contrast in the text at hand. The other points flow into or flow from this very reality here. And this brothers and sisters, is the anchor of our faith, the steadfast hope of our salvation. This contrast of the standing priests and the sitting priest. He says to consider the priests of old, when he says every priest stands daily, consider the priests of old, year after year, they came and they sacrificed the the offering for atonement, But even more than that, day after day, they were sacrificing burnt offerings for sin time after time again. Tom Schreiner notes that the burnt offering, which is offered in part to obtain forgiveness, must be offered every day. Think about the the very structure and the very 
nature of the Levitical priesthood. You had a family of priests because one wasn't sufficient for the actual work because there were so many sacrifices that needed to be done. But one, you had a family of priests and they were doing the work and it was exhausting work. And so there were actually rotations of priests. They would be on duty and then they would go off duty and more would come on duty and then they would go off duty and they would go on duty. And then you had a priest die. Still doing, actually, no, he would have retired because at some point they were just like, this is too much and the older guys have to retire and let the younger guys take over. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, generation after generation after generation. And so even in the very nature of the structure itself, we see that it was ongoing service, it was hard service, and it was continual service with no completion. Not even, not even progress. A priest could never sacrifice in the morning and say, Whew, won't have to do that tomorrow. Got that one done. Finally checked that box off the list. There, there was no, no progress in that. They stood because they were never done. But he, verse 12, Jesus Christ sat. He sat because he finished his job. He sat because when he offered the sacrifice, there was no more sacrifice to offer. It was one and done. And this sitting was not a, a sitting of fatigue or, or discouragement or just kind of slumped over. Man, I, I can't believe I, I only got that far and I still have that much more to do or anything like that. This is, this is a sitting of completion and then a complete reorientation of direction. Look at, look at what the suffering Savior was all about next. Okay, look at verse 12. He, Jesus Christ, sat down where? At the right hand of God, doing what? Waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So when Jesus finished the sacrifice for sins, he sat down because that was complete. And then he's like, there's a next stage that's coming there is a next thing which I am now about. And we know that while he sits, he intercedes for us on our behalf. And that's an ongoing and active ministry. But while he's doing that, he's waiting. And he's thinking about what's next. Which is not more atonement. Which is not more sacrifices. Which is not, oh, I only, I just missed that one. No, 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 no. He's done. It's complete, and he says, this is what's next. He's sitting in power and anticipating victory. See, he sits at the right hand of God, and this is the seat of power. This is a big deal. The author of Hebrews uses this phrase from the Psalms multiple times throughout the book of Hebrews. And, and again, it's designed, it's intended to anchor the struggling soul. It's intended to anchor the struggling believer in the midst of the hardships of life and their temptations to fall away or their temptations to doubt or their temptations to sin. 
It's supposed to draw them back and to make them realize that is the one that my faith is placed in. I will remain faithful to him, the one who sits at the right hand of God, waiting eagerly for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. As James Boyce says, what does it mean to sit at God's right hand? In the ancient world, to sit at a person's right hand was to occupy a place of honor. A seat at the right hand of the host would be a place of honor at a dinner. To sit at a king's right hand was more than mere honor. It was to share in his rule. It signified participation in the royal dignity and power. Isn't it reminiscent of what Paul writes in Philippians 2 after he talks about the humiliation of Christ and how he endured suffering on the cross in the form of man? And then it says, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess. Do you remember Pastor Rick's sermon last week? That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, this is the one that Stephen saw when he testified before the Jewish authorities as Paul, well, Saul, as Saul Paul was looking on. And Stephen's testifying, and he tells him the whole story of how God was faithful to his people for so long. And then at the very end of it all, he, the, the, the heavens are opening, he's given a vision, and he sees the Son of Man at the right hand of God the Father. And he says that. And that statement, because of all the connotations associated with that of power, of deity, of authority, and rule, and him saying, that's Jesus, that drove the Jewish authorities insane with anger. And at that moment, they snapped and they started flinging the rocks. Because to be at the right hand of God is to be God, to hold the position of ultimate honor and power and authority. And Jesus sat there after offering himself because the atonement process was done. And he was moving on to what's next, which is victory. Not more atonement. Not more sacrificing. Victory. See, when, when, you, when you read, okay, Jesus is, verse 13, he's waiting from that time onward. It's easy to kind of think, okay, maybe he's up there in his lazy boy, got his feet kicked up. No, none of you would imagine this, him sitting there, you know, twiddling his thumbs. No, 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 no. It's not that kind of a waiting. This is, this is a waiting of eager anticipation. All right, it's the waiting, if you look in chapter 9, verse 28, is the waiting that we're supposed to have as we wait for Christ to return. Look in chapter 9, we'll start in 27. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, but what is it for? For salvation without reference to sin, and then here's our word, to those who eagerly wait for him. We are to be in eager anticipation of the return of Christ. Like there's this, this antsiness to us that we just can't get out of our system because we just want that to come. And this is the same word here that is used of Christ as he sits on the throne and he's waiting from that time onward 
until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. See, as Jesus sits in intercession for us, what we need to do is not think of him kicked back in relaxation, but we need to think of him sitting on the throne, and let's assume that there are armrests on this throne, okay? And his fingers are curled around the edge of the throne in readiness. His weight is on the balls of his feet, and his toes are a little bit tensed. Why? Readiness. Why? Anticipation. Why? Eagerness. For what? Ultimate victory. Because the atonement's done. And what's next for Jesus Christ is ultimate victory. Like we said in, in, in chapter 9, 28, he will come again, but it's for salvation without reference to sin. See, Jesus is done making atonement. He has, he has patched the 20-gallon bucket and he has filled it to the brim and nothing's going to take the fullness of that out. In one moment, with his self-sacrifice, he completed atonement. But the question for us in the midst of this is sometimes, do, do we doubt and I think if we're all honest, myself included, we would say, yes, there are times of doubting with our actions or with our thoughts, with my own self-condemnation and my own prideful ability, denial of, of maybe, maybe just, maybe he just can't quite handle that. I just don't really know that his sacrifice was sufficient for that. But if we do that, if we say that, then that's like saying, okay, Jesus, I know that you did that and then you sat down and now you're moving on to that and you're thinking about that and you're eagerly anticipating that and you're done with the atonement. But can you just get up and just make sure to finish the job for me? Do you hear the hubris of that? The, the arrogance of that to say, well... I doubt your work and the completion of what you have done as the Son of God and the Son of Man who now sits at the right hand of God the Father. I just don't really think you know what done means. But we need to be assured. We need to be assured Jesus is done, and he's done like no priest ever before was ever done. He is done, and he has moved on into eager anticipation of his ultimate victory and the fulfillment of God's ultimate plan to fully destroy evil and to make all things new. Along with interceding for the saints, that is what Jesus is about now. No more atonement. The sacrifice is done. And so we need to be amazed at that. We need to rest. We need to trust. And we need to be refreshed in that truth this morning that Jesus is done. And if, if your faith is in him and in his work, your sin is atoned for. Period. No comma no semicolon, no nothing that allows for continuation. 
All right? If your faith is in Jesus and in his work, your sin is atoned for. The second contrast here would be that of required repetitions. Many versus none. No repetitions, repetitions needed for what Jesus has done. It is one and done. We see this in the phrases that the, 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 the priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. All right? And on the other hand, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, And like I said, the first contrast of standing and sitting is actually the culminating truth. That is is the the, the bedrock of our faith in Jesus' completed work. These next two points are supporting arguments, as it were. See, the priests kept standing in their ministry because of so many repetitions were required. Look back in Exodus with me real quick. Exodus 29. Or you can just listen, but we'll read Exodus 29, starting in verse 38. It says, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs, listen to this, each day, continuously. It's, It's in place right there. Verse 39, The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering with one lamb. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it the same grain offering and the same drink offerings as in the morning for a soothing aroma and offering by fire to the Lord. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. Morning and evening, day after day, year after year, decade after decade, always the same. The priests never wondered, ah, I wonder what I'm going to do tomorrow when I wake up. It was make an offering. They never thought, hmm, what shall I do this evening? It was make an offering. Kill another animal. Shed the blood of an animal. And so the priests kept standing because so many repetitions were required. But Jesus offered one sacrifice, same words, same word, they offered many. He offered one, and he offered one for sins for all time. Many repetitions, no repetitions. One and done. So part of the issue at hand is the nature of the sacrifices themselves. The priests, as we just saw, were offering lambs. And here it says in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 10, they were offering the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The focus here is on permanence because it's important to note the Old Testament Jews who sacrificed according to the law in faith were granted forgiveness. God didn't hoodwink them and say, okay, here's a a whole bunch of stuff to do, but it actually doesn't do you any good. All right? Let's, 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 Let's prove it. Go back to the very... Giving of the law, the writing of the law, Leviticus chapter 1, 
I have nine of these written down, but I'll just read like three or so, okay? Chapter 1, verse 4, he shall lay his head, his hand, sorry. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Why? That it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. That's God's promise. Chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 20. He shall also do with the bowl just as he did with the bowl of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priest shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Verse 26. Talking about these offerings, talking about the sacrifices, all of its fat he shall offer up in smoke on the altar, as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. We can look over at chapter 5, verse 6. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. So atonement and forgiveness are extended through participation in the system in faith. All right, so it's important to note that the system that God had put in place was meant to offer forgiveness because of their faith in Him and because of His, their participation in His revealed will, but it never actually fully took away sins. We see that back in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. This is the problem, and this is where our passage comes from. Verse 2, though, he says, Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. I believe that we're told even specifically in Romans 3 that God in His forbearance passes over those and awaits the one sacrifice as atonement, full and effective atonement. Because the sacrifice of Christ was different. And what was that? Look in chapter 10, verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus, contrasted with lambs and goats and bulls, offered Himself. The physical body of God become man was the offering that He gave. He gave Himself. And this was better than generations of bulls and goats and lambs. It was better than myriads upon myriads of animals slain on behalf of mankind. So much better, it required no repetition. It's good for all time. Not just good until you sinned again. Not just good until you fell again. Not just good until you just had that one more struggle. Good for all time. Pause and let that sink in. For all time. So let me ask you something. 
What would you want Jesus to add to that in order to be enough? What would, what would we have the foolishness and arrogance to think needs to be supplemented to the sacrifice of the Son of God himself? But this is what we do in, in, in certain times of doubt when we think to ourselves, oh, 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 surely this is too much. Too bad of a sin. Well, I'm not really sure that he really can do what he said he has done. I, I, it's, it's what happens when we say, well, I need to fix myself before I come to Christ because what he's done really isn't enough to take me where I am in salvation and confession and forgiveness. And so we need to realize, we need to rest in the fact that there's no need for further repetition. And so Jesus has sat at the right hand of God and he eagerly awaits the next stage and he calls you today to trust in him and in his complete, unrepeatable sacrifice for your forgiveness and for your eternal security. Which brings us to the third contrast. The sacrificial sufficiency, which is on the one hand, it's only partial, and on the other hand, it is complete. As we saw already, these sacrifices on the one hand could never fully take away sins, but on the other hand, by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And so like we said, animal sacrifices of the Old Testament system could never fully take away sins although faithful participation did grant forgiveness in God's plan. And this was seen all the way back in, in Samuel's rebuke of Saul, where he said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God wants the heart. God wants faithful engagement with who He is and what He's said. We see that in Isaiah 1 as God pleads with the people to respond in repentance and contrition and to align their lives with God's will because the sacrifices in and of themselves weren't what God wanted. He wanted faithful hearts understanding their need for forgiveness and trusting their good and gracious God to provide that. But what does Jesus' one and done sacrifice accomplish? Ah, perfection. By the one offering of his body on the cross, Jesus made, has perfected those who are sanctified. This is one of those Greek geek moments where the tense, okay, says this. It was done and it keeps having impact. On and on and on. Oh, it says for all time. That makes sense. Okay, on and on and on and on. The effect continues. What about this idea of perfection, though? P.T. O'Brien helps. He says, we've already seen that the perfecting of believers involves qualifying them to draw near to God or enabling them to enjoy the certainty of a new covenant relationship with God. It's in previous portions of Hebrews. So this basically has to do with the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of their consciences so that they're consecrated to God's service and finally will participate in the promised eternal inheritance. See, it's not about uh, saying that we're, we're given perfect righteousness in our living and in our actions right now, but it's our status and our relationship and our guilt before the Lord. Schreiner agrees. He says, the word perfected is a favorite of the author. 
The law and its sacrifices didn't bring perfection since they can't perfect the conscience, which is in chapter 9.9. Perfection in Hebrews has the idea that sins are cleansed and removed so that the conscience is no longer defiled by guilt. Believers, by virtue of Christ's sacrifice, can now enter God's presence freely and boldly. Think about it. This is what was done when the veil of the temple was torn in two. Access, full and free, with a clean conscience, by faith, in Christ, to God. As O'Brien and Schreiner emphasize, it's a cleansing and a perfecting at the deepest inner level, your conscience. And I know, I know, your and my minds and our thoughts can, can, can lead us astray in this. And we can think, no, I just, I just don't know. I don't, I don't think that really is enough. I don't, think, I don't really think that I am enough. I don't really think that I do enough. And, and that's not really our conscience. All right, because what God does here overcomes our fickleness and our struggles and our fluctuations of assurance. Because in Christ, okay, due to his completely sufficient sacrifice, you are completely and objectively made right with God through faith. Done. Does that seem too good to be true? It is. But that highlights the grace and goodness of God. Because we don't deserve it. It's hard to understand it, but that's how he lays it out. And there is one more important phrase to bring to bear, which is that idea of for all time. Day after day, they offered sacrifices. Jesus made one that was effective for all time. See, the Jews and the priests of the Old Testament were reminded day after day of the presence of sin, year after year of the presence of sin and the ongoing condemnation of that. But we, we're going to celebrate communion in just a moment, we are reminded week after week and month after month that Jesus' sacrifice has accomplished its work for all time. There is no reminder of the ongoing condemnation of sin. Only the ongoing reminder of the completed atonement for sin made by Jesus Christ for you and for me and all who repent and put their faith in his life, his death, and resurrection. And so this is the anchor of our salvation. If you want trust and assurance and rest and peace in your heart and in your mind, don't look to yourself. Don't look to that leaky bucket, but look to Christ and his completed one and done work. And he now sits and he's looking ahead to the fullness of God's plan and the ultimate victory that is to be had. And it's the anchor in what we celebrate this morning at the Lord's table. And it's all in Christ. If you need to go back and review Ephesians 1 with Pastor Rick and the sermons, then I encourage you to do that, to remember what it is to be in him and in him and in him and all the richness of that. But don't doubt this truth. Don't let yourself doubt this truth. Don't let others around you doubt this truth, that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and is complete. Don't question the sufficiency of the Son of God's perfect sacrifice, but rest in it. Be assured of it. See the times of questioning for what they are, which is going to be more along the lines of a self-pity or a prideful inclination to see the severity of your own sin 
as somehow diminishing the effectiveness of the sacrifice of the Son of God and the completion with which he views his sacrifice? Lord God, I thank you for this encouraging truth. In the midst of our fickleness and in the midst of our doubts and in the midst of our weakness, our Savior is strong and his work is complete. Thank you for your word and the truth that it states so boldly and strongly that sometimes we have trouble wrapping our minds and our lives around and yet they're steadfast. So help us to conform to it. We give you thanks for your grace, for your mercy. And Lord, if there are those still here who have not bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord and confessed and placed their faith in him, we ask that you would work that work soon. Give us grace that we might go as salt and light in the world this week and continue on in our worship as we fellowship and minister to one another now in Jesus' name. Amen.